the hour. Um, something strange happened, not this week, but the week before last, before I had uh, a complete and total train wreck happen in my spine. I was seeking the Lord, and I was asking him what word that did he want me to bring to the congregation. This would have been last Sunday. And, uh, you know, nothing shocks God, right? doesn't matter what's going on in your life. God is not taken by surprise. And so he told me to do something that I have not done, Paul, in many, many years. And he said, go back to the past. I'm thinking, yeah. And so I grabbed um, a book, a binder, full of sermons that I had written over the past two-plus decades, uh, some for here, some before that. And I started surfing that because he said, go to the past. And I took out several messages and put them in a file folder and put them in my backpack to take home to peruse. And lo and behold, I have a back spasm Saturday week ago that took me out of service last week. And that happened again to me on Tuesday, which took me out of Wednesday of this past week. And so I've got all these sermons, but I don't have a pulpit. And so I'm praying. I'm just saying, Lord, and I'm working on stuff. You know, the Lord is giving me stuff to preach about. But he reminds me, you have a folder in your backpack that you need to pull out and look at because you're going to be preaching Sunday. And so I pulled it out, and I start surfing these messages. And it's funny because there's only like six or eight of them in the folder. And I'm just going through them, and no, no. And all of a sudden, this one came out, and it kind of registered with me, and I don't ha- didn't have the foggiest idea why. And I started reading through it, and I went, okay, that's the one that the Lord wants me to preach this morning. And I still didn't have any earthly idea the why. The last time I preached this message was 18 years ago. (laughs) Which makes you think, wow, this is going to be a doozy. That's what I thought. I'm thinking to myself, yee, I hope I've grown In 18 years. Patty's over here going, amen. I'm hoping, you know, and so I go, okay. And so I start going into this this old message. And of all times, I'm just last night, I'm, I'm in bed and I'm going over it, which is my ritual, going over it again last night in bed. And the Lord reminds me of something that he gave me the first part of this month. And I was like, light bulb went on. And then I realized why he gave me this 18-year-old message to preach to you today. So, with that said, I want to preach to you this morning on a subject that's nearly two decades old entitled Giants. In the promise of God. 
somebody needs this today because I can feel Him. I don't know who you are or who you may be in multiples. I have no idea, but there's something going to be said today that's going to apply to your life, despite the fact that this was written nearly two decades ago. Um, Let's go to Numbers, and we're going to go to the 13th chapter, and we're going to start in the 26th verse, and I'm going to read all the way through the 33rd verse. When I originally wrote this, I pieced out a couple of verses segmented them out, but I decided yesterday I was going to go ahead and read this entire context. Verse 26, Numbers chapter 13, and this is what the Bible says, they came back to Moses and Aaron, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly. And showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Right about then is in the presence of this company, and they say that the whole group, like on TV and movies, goes, Okay? The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Negev is in the southwest. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. So this is kind of like Texas. And the Canaanites live near the sea, that's the Gulf Coast, and along the Jordan. (laughs) Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. That was his report. There's a lot of information flowing here. And Caleb just kind of goes, shh, we need to go now. That's what he says. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devour those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim. This is another uh, time where um, people go, Okay? That's another one of those times. I got the paper clip in the wrong spot. Sorry. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now, I want to just say something before I even get into this message. Just know this, that how many of you have ever sang the old hymns that talk about Canaan being heaven? Okay, theologically, that's wrong. That is not truth, and I'm not dissing the, because the old hymns are awesome. 
theologically that's wrong. Canaan is not heaven. If heaven was Canaan, then heaven has giants, um, heathen, pagan nations, wars, grotesque killing, etc., 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 along with all the blessings of Canaan. So Canaan nicks that whole concept. It's not heaven. Canaan, now remember what we call Canaan in the Old Testament, the promised land, land of promise. The promised land, listen to me now, is your life and your living in Jesus Christ. Hear me? You have great, abundant fruit within you, flowing with milk and honey. But guess what else you got? The Amalekites, the Hittites, the Nephilim, the Anak lives there, the, all those bad things. And remember what the description here says. These people are larger and stronger than us, and they have cities that are fortified. In the New Testament terminology, what that means is strongholds. Every last individual that comes to Jesus Christ have Canaanites living in them, Canaanites being your prior life before Jesus living in you. And some of those things have fortified cities or strongholds within your being that you have to sack, overthrow, level, and conquer. Canaan is not heaven. Canaan is your life and your living. You remember who took Israel into the promised land. Joshua. Do you know how the Jews pronounce the name Joshua? Yeshua. Who does that sound like? Yeshua. Jesus. He takes his people into their promise and with his leadership conquers and runs a campaign throughout the promise in order to overthrow those things that are already living there. Ousting them so that he can put you in their place and reap the benefits. Does everybody get the theology? Okay. I needed to say that so that we understood the background or the framework from which I'm going to be coming this morning. Prior to our text this morning here in Numbers chapter 13, Israel had already been liberated from Egypt. The Red Sea had served as reaper over the army of Pharaoh. Miriam had danced. And now the entire nation of Israel was camped in the desert of Paran. Now, the desert of Paran is a vast wilderness. It's massive. It lies in the northeastern region of the Sinai Peninsula. If you, can, if you don't know geography very well, imagine northeast Africa, a great big land bridge connecting the end tip of the Mediterranean Sea to what we now call Israel. Um, Paran, the wilderness there, is that big strip. 
the Sinai Peninsula jutting out south by southeast. And it reaches nearly to the, to the southernmost border. It actually does reach to the southernmost border of what we are calling Canaan this morning, Israel, today. It was here in this vast desert place that Moses received a word from God telling him to send spies into Canaan so that they would explore it. Twelve men were selected, one from every single ancestral tribe, and they headed out. Their instructions were really, really very simple. Enter Canaan through the Negev. The Negev is the southwestern edge of Judah, the southern kingdom. Or, uh, and, and go up into the hill country. Hunt deer. Oh, come on. Is everybody that slow this morning? Go on up into the hill country. Get some really good barbecue. Of course, minus the pork. Oh, come on, people. you got to be quicker than that. These are Jews. No pork. Oh, if I have to explain it, it's not funny, Ron. Man. So they go up into the hill country. This would be what would we would call uh, later Ephraim. And assess the land. Check out its cities. Look into its people. Now, and come back with word about any strengths or any weaknesses. Come back with word on resources. And then when you're done, loop back through and come on back to where we're at in the desert of Paran. The twelve had 40 days with which to accomplish this. Go in, explore, and return. Chapter 13, uh, verses 21 through 25, if you're a note taker, that tells about the route that they took. So if you want to, earlier in the chapter that we used as a text, just go to verses 21 through 25 and you can actually open a book in the back of your Bible, look at a map, and actually trace their steps. Upon their return, the twelve gave their report. All twelve started out great. It sounded great, man. It was a good report. However, and there's always a however. However, it didn't take long for things to categorically head south. Two, two believed the promise of God regarding Canaan. Two. Have you ever felt like you're just outnumbered? When you were outnumbered, did the tide turn against you and you had to go along with the majority because there was no other going along to go with? Two believed the report of the Lord, leaving ten who not only didn't believe the report of the Lord, but they set about spreading dissension and disunity and doubt among the entire population of God's people. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? And you say, well, because this blah, blah, blah. Well, not, wait a minute. Do you know do you know what these people have been delivered from? 
400 years of oppression. Now, they just didn't get bail paid and they bounced. No. God came on the scene and did all the stuff that we read about that delivered Israel from Egypt by the hand of Moses. All of that stuff in the confines of the city limits and beyond in Egypt, they experienced every bit of it, every last horrifying, terrifying thing that went on in Egypt. They were there to witness it, and yet on them, the hand of God was stayed and delivered them from, at that point in history, the single biggest superpower on planet Earth. And they didn't raise a finger except in obedience. And yet, ten of the twelve can't buy in to the promise of God. Well, we're not done yet. Not only do they witness what happens in Egypt, they walk out of Egypt with the riches of Egypt strapped in their wagons, on their donkeys, to their camels, in their backpacks, in their pockets, you name it. They walk out a wealthy nation. And yet they can't believe the promise of God. But we're still not done. Because they're heading out and they're about to cross into the Sinai Peninsula on their way to Canaan. Roughly 11-day journey before they get out of captivity and into the promise. And all they have to do is cross a Red Sea. That's all they have to do. Well, they get stuck there. And lo and behold, and what's so funny is that the entire journey out of Egypt to get to the, the base of the Sinai Peninsula... The funny is God's presence is perpetually with them. And not just in faith. There's a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. He's manifested there. He is showing His might and His power. The whole journey. Well, they get stuck there. And lo and behold, someone turns around and goes, Oh, we have a problem. I don't think this is going to bode well. Because I think that's Pharaoh and all of the Egyptian cavalry on our hind end, and they're going to come here and they're going to kill us. And of course, what do we do when we're delivered from the enemy and we have no experience, we have no maturity in us, and we see him coming back because he kind of likes us in a way that means he really hates us. Well, we freak out, right? Because there isn't a way to get through the Red Sea. Well, (laughs) Moses does what Moses does. He heard the voice of God. And what's he do? He stretches his rod out and the Red Sea is parted and they walk across on dry land. You see, the Red Sea does two things. Not only does it safely transport God's people, but it kills the enemy in pursuit. That's what the Red Sea does. Guess what? Not only was Joshua a type of Jesus, but the Red Sea is a type of blood. Come on. 
You see, I know I'm supposed to be talking about giants, but this is just too good. When you are, when you are forcefully extricated from the clutches of the enemy in your life, and you find yourself at a border where you cannot pass yourself, the Lord opens up His Red Sea of Jesus' sacrificial blood and transports you through that sea onto dry land into the promise of God. And any pursuer that might be coming after you with nefarious purposes, you see, they can't, trans, they can't, they can't uh, go through the Red Sea. The Red Sea destroys them. That's our life and that's our living. And yet, with all of that happening, we still have ten spies who can't get a grip on the promise of God. We can't go in there. Well, what about, what about Egypt? What about Egypt? They're really big people. Well, well, what about all the wealth and the riches God gave us? What about it? Those people are really huge. Well, what about the Red Sea? What about the Red Sea? We were walking through a sea and I didn't even get seafood. What about it? These people are the here and now. People, don't forget God's power in your life that has been there before. Don't forget the power of God that has transacted the, the contracts of your life and your living. Don't forget Him. He's the same. Remember what He says about Himself? I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't. He says, man, when I turn, there isn't even a shadow. It doesn't move because there is no shadow. I am light. I am the same. That's who he is. And yet we have these ten guys utterly freaking out. Why? What bothered these spies? Let's look at our text again. Not the whole one. Let's just jump down to verse 28. Verse 28 says this, But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Now jump on down to the second half of verse 32 where it says, um, uh, They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. That's real good self-image right there. And we looked the same to them. Now remember, for the longest time, I always thought that the 12 spies went in and they're all sticking, you know, they're, they're in bushes and they're poking their eyes out to see everything. No, 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 no. No, they're mixing it up. They're 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 moving around. Remember, they they're 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 spies. They're moving about the country, and they're seeing things and they're being seen. They're just not being detected. They're hiding in plain sight. And so, they say while we're walking around and we're looking at these people, holy cow, we look like grasshoppers to ourselves. And as we're walking around doing this, they're walking around doing this. And we looked like grasshoppers to them too. So, what was their problem? They were afraid of giants. 
In these three verses, there are four separate references to giants. In verse 29, the ten spies do refer to five other tribes that live there indigenously, living in specific areas that they were told to explore. They do reference those people too, but those other tribes, those other tribes weren't the issue. Israel is never afraid of a fight. They're not afraid of those other people. They weren't the issue. Verse 29 was just reporting on what they saw. That's all it was. The giants now, do you notice how the ten point out the giants and how problematic they are? Okay, that's important to know. That these spies are running around reporting, seeing all these tribes, but the only things they get hung up on It's not fighting these other tribes. It's not fighting these other peoples. They get hung up on the giants. Okay. Deuteronomy 2, 10 and 11. um, Those scriptures right there, Deuteronomy 2, 10 and 11, they're not up here. They describe what giants are from a biblical perspective. They're strong, they're tall, and there's a bunch of them. That's what the giants are. There are four separate names in Scripture for giants. Four of them. And these are all, were living. These are historical individuals in Canaan. Okay? The first is the Anakites. The Anakites were descendants of Anak. <laughs> wow, that was easy. Son of Arba. Founder of Kiriath Arba. Later known to us, we know that place is Hebron. Anak's name meant ornament. Well, that's nice. It also means necklace. Well, that can't be a bad guy at all. Except for the fact that necklace and ornament actually has a connotation meaning to strangle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nate got that one right away. So that necklace, okay, so that's what that's all about. The term anic was often used in a general reference as well, just to the giant tribes. But let's move on. The next, there's the Nephilim. The Hebrew here means a feller. I don't mean he's a good feller. That's not what I mean. By feller, we're thinking almost lumberjack in timber industry. It's to make things fall because they're giants. And the connotation here is tyrant. Or bully. Like the term Anakite, Nephilim is a general reference to giants. Then there's the Emites. These are people who uh, uh, were from Moabitish uh, descent whose name means terrors. That's a fun group to bring to a party right there. Yeah. Finally, there are the Rephaites. They were the descendants of Rapha. Their name simply means giant. For the most part, the Anakites or the Nephilim were hill country people dwelling in the hills of both Judah and Israel. You can find that out in the 11th chapter of the book of Joshua. The Bible specifically refers to several giants by name or by some particular characteristic attributed to them. One giant named Ishbi Beneb threatened to assassinate David. 
and was killed by Abishai. One man known only as a huge man, a descendant of Rapha, having six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, was killed in battle at, of all places, Gath, by John, uh, David's nephew. Og, king of Bashan, Erephite, was the only survivor of the Hebrew assault on Bashan. Of him it was said that his sarcophagus, for those of you who don't know what that word means, his coffin, his coffin was 13 feet long, 6 feet wide, and made of iron. I wouldn't want to be one of the pallbearers. <laughs> Not with my back. <laughs> Sorry. The giant Saph, another descendant of Rapha, was killed at Gob by the, Hush, the, the Hushite of Sebekiah. Elhanah killed the giant Lami, Goliath's brother, in battle. And, of course, that brings us to the one and only infamous Goliath of Gath, who met his demise on a battlefield at the hand of a boy. Now, I know what you're thinking. At least I think I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking something to the effect of, wow, Michael, that's great stuff. So glad you brought that to my attention. I feel like I've been sitting here in front of my TV watching National, National Geographic. I'm just glad you brought that. But why are you telling me all of this? What is the point? What possible spiritual value could this, this information have on my life? The, the, the giants were practically fairy tales. I mean, even when we preach about the giants, we perceive them as cartoon figures on flannel graph boards. They're really not real. When you think of giants, I mean, let's be honest, we think of two very famous names, Mother Goose and the Brothers Grimm. Let's be honest. And there we have it. That is the entire point. That is the entire point. They weren't fictitious, and they weren't fairy tales and they were not mythological. In fact, ancient records speak to giants all over the world. That's a simple one to find. Israel entered into Canaan knowing of the existence of giants. Do you realize the importance of the fact that they come back and they tell Joshua who's there by name? How many of you... If, if I were to ask any, any of you to name three different people types on the continent that we call the Dark Continent, how many of you right now could name three people types? 100% of you could raise your hands. It would just take you a second, but 100% of you could. You know why? Because people have reputations. What we forget to remember or understand is even back then there was no internet, cell phones or anything like that but people still made their rounds trading, buying moving, etc 
they got all over the place. And the Anak, the Nephilim, all of them, they all had reputations. They all were known. The Amorites, the Hittites, the, all of them. All these peoples were known because they weren't just isolated islands. It's important to know that these people were not myths. They were real. And Israel knew them by name. Um, and they came out after their reconnaissance mission calling them by name. They were real. Why is that important? Because, ladies and gentlemen, we have our own giants. And they're not mythological. Mother Goose didn't write about these. In our Canaans, our individual Canaans, we have all the usual suspects. But there are also giants in the land. And it's the giants that get us hung up. Let's move forward. The fact of the matter is is that the Nephilim were half-ton bullies with an equally enormous reputation. Intimidation was their greatest weapon. Just take a look. Now think about I want you to ponder this. Look at the effect that Goliath had on Israel. Do you realize the Bible tells us about that conflict with Israel and the Philistines? That both armies were lined up ready to go to war. Israel didn't have a problem with Philistines. They were going to go knock a mud hole into the Philistine army and stomp it dry and walk away. But doggone it, there's that Gathite. That one guy that shows up and ruins the whole party. Look at the influence that a giant has. I want you to think about this. Let me give you this, this, this to consider. If it hadn't been for the giants in the promised land and their ability to intimidate the people of God, Israel would have been in the promised land. The promise of God for their life 40 years earlier. Did you all catch that? If it hadn't been for the giants, the people of God would have been in their promise 40 years earlier. That's massive. And, and, just think about the possibility of this. I'm not saying it was absolute, I'm saying it's a possibility. Joshua wouldn't have been the one leading the campaign. Moses would have been. Moses wouldn't have been left on the western shore, or the eastern shore, I'm sorry, of the Jordan. He wouldn't have been sitting there outside of the promise. He would have been in there dividing the country and heading campaigns north and south. That's insane. Let's put that into perspective. If Israel had invaded Canaan 40 years earlier, David probably would never have met Goliath on the field of battle. Why? It would have been very likely that Goliath would never have been born or 
that if he had been born, he would have been eliminated far earlier in his life because his ancestors would have been killed in the early campaigns throughout Canaan. He never would have showed up. Why? Because there would have been 40 additional years of especially Caleb. And Caleb was the one, according to your Bible, who was responsible for moving into the hill country and taking care of the giants. Hebrew history would have had to have been rewritten if it hadn't been for giants. If it hadn't been for giants in the promise of God. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2. I have cited this over the years many times. Listen to this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. Now listen to this. Now watch my hands. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations. Seven nations. How many nations? Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Now, there's no ambiguity here. Let's move forward. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. In this verse, God specifies seven tribes that if not forcefully engaged would ultimately destroy Israel in one way or another, either by never allowing them to enter Canaan or by influencing them afterwards. And we all know that it was that they influenced them afterwards. Many, many times. The whole reason that Israel went in and out of captivities is because the Canaanites that were supposed to have been utterly obliterated weren't. And they affected Israel in the negative countless times. I believe the cycle was seven different times of freedom to bondage to deliverance to freedom. And back around and around and around and around. Because they didn't do the job. They were bigger and stronger than Israel, and in order to eradicate them, God was going to have to be the deciding factor in the conflicts with them. And if He would not simply put, Israel was not going to possess God's promise. So, let me ask you a question about the, the list that I just read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. What's missing from that list? Let's read it again, just right quick. Just those... Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations. What's missing from that? What's missing from that particular list? I'll tell you what it is. There aren't any giants. Now doesn't that seem weird to you? That God goes and says, look, this is your job. You're going in. Destroy everything. I'll sort it out for you. Eliminate everything. And he lists the people groups by name and doesn't name a single giant. Well, 
liberal theology would say, well, that means they weren't supposed to be destroyed. Liberal theologians, I won't go there. God didn't even mention the giants in his list tribes that had to be removed in order for his people to possess the inheritance he intended them to have. Doesn't even mention them. Yet ten spies, ten spies come out of Canaan telling everyone in the camp that the campaign is impossible, not because of the Amorites or the Hittites or the Girgashites or the other rest of the seven. No, but because there's giants there that God doesn't even take time to mention in His hit list. One tribe. One tribe that God didn't even mention. Hung the whole... It sounds like what happened... Later in life, when David has to show up with what Gary Johnson always calls grilled cheese and Fritos. He shows up, and there's a giant. Look at me. Look, look at me. The giant shouldn't have been there. He should not have existed. But he did. There are Christians. Now I'm coming to you. There are Christians whose lives get paralyzed from moving forward in God. Just like the ten spies when they encounter something unusually and disproportionately large in their battle for their personal promised land. When they see it, they're tempted to bail out on God's promise for them. Because whatever that thing is, whatever that giant is, it's too big. It's too strong. It's just too powerful. All over an unlisted tribe. The seven tribes in the personal Canaan are tribes of sin. Listen to me now. I'm about to give you specific details about your life with respect to these Scriptures. The seven tribes... In Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, the seven tribes in our personal Canaan are tribes of sin and self-will. They're tribes of pride and arrogance and lust and passion. Things that make up our nature and that we need God to drive out of our lives in order for us to be able to possess our promised land. Things in our lives that cannot stay because God will not cohabit with those sins. They've got to come out. Blood-bought people of God who are okay with lust and other passions of the carnal flesh are people who are not blood-red washed. They are soft pink. Those seven tribes, that's what they represent. God said, you go in there, you kill all of them. Don't you make a treaty? Don't you make agreements? Later in that seventh chapter, he says, don't you give your daughters to marry their sons. And don't your sons take their daughters. They're to be dead. Eradicate. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but you remember the hundred times that I've mentioned already about me in traffic? That doesn't get to stay in my life. What's in yours? What Canaanite resides resides in your life? What tribe needs to be eradicated from your existence? Proverbs 6. Now, this is going to blow your mind. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. We're going to read through 19. How many tribes? Seven. Listen to verse 16 of Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to Him. Haughty eyes. Think you're better than than everybody else? A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush to evil. A false witness who pours out lies. And a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Do you realize what that last one just said? And a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Do you realize that we're talking about church folk here? Do you realize that? And yet there are seven tribes in, in Deuteronomy 7 that need to be eradicated to the uttermost. And these are the things that the Lord finds detestable, seven of them. And these are the tribes that need to go, but we're not talking about those tribes. We're still talking about giants, aren't we? Well, do you realize that none of those things and none of those seven tribes are giants? Not a one of those is giants. Those things are the things that get eradicated when you come under the blood and you get in contract, in concert with Him to eliminate them from your life. Those things are sin. That is our nature. The only God, and only God can drive those things out through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His blood. Now we're coming down to the end of this message. The giants, on the other hand, represent those things that we just think they're just too big. They're too strong and too powerful to conquer in our quest for the promised land. We've heard about them. We know their reputation. We even know their names. Their names is called sickness and disease, financial distress, any number of crises that come down the pike and into our life, accident or disaster, etc. Have you ever been coming out of a, a valley? Has God ever been drawing you up out of a valley where God has been elevating you and He's elevating you up to the mountaintop and halfway up that mountaintop, halfway up that mountainside, you run smack into a giant. Well, the money isn't there. Or the sickness has hit. Or some tragedy has come along into your life. You've lost your job. Etc. You're climbing the mountain and God is elevating you only for you. Halfway up that mountainside, you run smack into a giant. Look at me. Everybody, look at me. Don't be surprised. You should not be shocked 
that when God is elevating you up the mountainside to get you to the top, that you run into a giant. Why? Because the giants are the ones that live in the hill country. They're hill country folk. You need to be wise as serpents and know that on your climb upward, they're there waiting for you. Watch for them. Here's the funny thing. We're not afraid of the seven. We'll fight the seven. Man, we want to be good Christians. We'll fight the seven. All that stuff inside of us that's just sin, that's carnality, we'll fight that stuff. You give me a chance. But when a giant appears, this has this nasty way of freezing some saints in their tracks and taking all the fight right out of them. You want to know a little secret about giants? <laughs> this is good. You might want to write this down. The presence of a giant. Now think about it. The presence of a giant can't keep you out of God's promise. The presence of a giant can't keep you out of the promise of God. The promise of God stands whether a giant is present or not. It's the seven tribes that God did mention as sin in Proverbs 6 and Galatians 5 that can keep us out of the promise. But a giant? Nope. Sickness, financial distress, tragedy, all that? They can't keep you out of the promise of God. No wonder He didn't mention them. Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but, uh, but cannot kill the soul. Matthew 10. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't be afraid of those that can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. That's an apt description of our giants. Be afraid of the one that in killing your soul takes your body to hell too. Giants can't do that. One more little thing. A little not so well kept secret. If we will allow him to drive the things out of our lives that will ensure our inheriting the promise, the sin, the carnality, if he if we will allow him to do that, allow him to deliver us from our sin and our wretched state, and we will take the initiative to defeat them in our lives by embracing His Son, Jesus Christ, if we will do that, then the fear of the giants will no longer exist because when the seven are gone, our nature will have been replaced by His. So, here's the $64,000 question. What's your giant? You see, if I haven't made it perfectly clear already, God is already working in our lives as born-again Christian through, our, through His blood. To, he's already redeemed us. Now He's transforming us into the image of the Son of God. That's Him taking down the seven. But what's your giant? Because the giant's the one that's going to stop you dead in your tracks when He shouldn't have to because He didn't even include it on His list. 
published January 5th of this year. This is why this is relevant. This just happened last night. January 5th of this year, a gentleman by the name of Bob Sorge. Anybody ever hear of Bob Sorge? I have a hard time believing that you've never heard of him. Bob Sorge is an author, a minister, and a prophet of God. I don't put a lot of stock in a whole lot of prophets. Just going to be honest with you. This guy? Yeah. He's different. Some of you may have run across him and not even know that you ran across him because he's the guy. He's not an old man. He's roughly my age-ish. But his voice is gone. And he speaks in a whisper. And where you and I would hold a discussion with a group of people, he has to use a microphone. And he, I, I, I met Bob once upon a time while on, during COVID, I was on a pastoral Zoom meeting that had been arranged nationally by a friend of mine, our general bishop's youngest brother, Brian Ming. Brian put pastors together all from all over the nation, and Bob was one of the the guys that was there that particular month to speak to us. Bob put out on January 5th the word of the Lord for 2023. The Lord spoke to him about 2023. Now normally, like I said, I don't put a whole lot of of faith in this kind of thing because I've heard too many prophets say things that were anything but profitable. The word of the Lord for 2023 is two words. Be brave. Now I'm going to read this. I'm going to read it word for word. It's very brief. The word of the Lord, the word the Lord has given me for 2023 is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 13. Be brave. Other translations render it be courage. Uh, be, I'm sorry, be courageous. Show courage. Do manfully Be men. Act like men. Acquit yourselves like men. In the Greek, it's a single word and could be literally rendered act the man. Or as one interlinear translation says, play the man. To say it in a contemporary idiom, we could say man up. This is a call. This call to courage from the Apostle Paul mirrors the Lord's call to Joshua. Be strong and of good courage. Joshua chapter 1. I sense the Lord saying to us, move forward, now listen carefully, in 2023 with boldness and bravery. This is not a year to shrink back or be intimidated or reserved or self-preserving. Don't simply play it safe. Rather, obey the call of the Lord with courage and strength. There are lots of reasons in 2023 to be cautious, timid, reticent, tentative, apprehensive, and afraid. Following Jesus is more unpopular today than I can remember in my lifetime, Sorge says. But all those reasons for caution are based in human evaluations of the terrain before us. The terrain before us. Doesn't that sound like what we were just studying? 
all those reasons for caution are based in human evaluations of the terrain before us. We can't go win that promise. None of those reasons to be nervous or hesitant proceed from the Holy Spirit. Yes, we should be wise, discerning, fully alert, and self-controlled, but not timid and self-preserving. I've learned something about courage from Ezra 3 and 3. At the time of that verse, the people of Israel faced fearful threats and danger from the people of the lands around them. But still, they bravely built an altar to God. Courage is not what you do in the absence of fear and danger, but what you do in the face of fear and danger. That's what courage is. Jesus demonstrated this kind of bravery when He spoke forward toward Calvary. Do you face fearful threats, potential danger, or possible backlash in 2023? Man up. Be brave. Put on the full armor of God. Take your stand and step forward in obedience to the Holy Spirit. God's Word for you in 2023 is be brave. What's your giant?